Hello, this is Future PMC. We are releasing episodes to the main feed of Radio Free Mercury, our patron-exclusive podcast series that covered The Witch for Mercury on a week-to-week basis as it aired. This week, we are releasing our discussion on episode 23 with Thaliarchus and Russell Latshaw. This podcast was originally published for patrons on June 30th, 2023. Right now in the main feed, we have just published a Witch for Mercury retrospective featuring Thal, Russell, and also... Space Queen Emily, as well as my co-host Stephen, who is, who is absent from this episode. And that's to mark the one-year anniversary debut of the G-Witch broadcast, and also to collect our thoughts three months after its conclusion. Next up on the main feed will be history and discussion episodes on both the first volume of MS Igloo, and then later, the Goran Lagan compilation films to round out the calendar year. Currently, our bonus podcast series for patrons is called Moonrace Wireless, a twice-a-month podcast covering single episodes of Turn A Gundam. The first four episodes of Moonrace Wireless are on the free main feed for you to check out. Thank you, and enjoy the podcast. This is Giant Robot FM, your home of all things Mecca, be it permit-infused or otherwise. I am your host, PMC Trilogy. This is Radio Free Mercury, episode 23 we will be discussing. That's right, the 23rd episode of Mobile Suit Gundam, The Witch for Mercury. This is PMC doing the intro. This is not Steven. What does that mean? What happened to Steven? Don't worry, Steven will be back. Uh, He just has a small, minor, uh, sort of elective medical procedure that he's undergoing. He hopes to be back as soon as possible. Uh, on that note, I do want to mention that we are going to be probably pushing back. If you're, if you're a Radio Free Mercury listener who's, who's with us week to week, we will be pushing back the episode 24, uh, hopefully to give him time to recover and also to accommodate our guest for that episode, uh, who will be Fees. Uh, Fees is traveling. Steven's recovering. So we, we're kicking it back a week, giving that finale episode time to stew. We'll be back with that. Uh, but don't worry, folks, I'm not recording this podcast solo. I do have some excellent guests with me. Joining me are Thaliarchus and Russell Latshaw. Uh, Thaliarchus, thank you for coming on. Uh, a pleasure, as always. And of course, good to have you too, Russell. Yeah, again, always always happy to be here and talk shop about Gundam. <laughs> yeah, so the last time we had, we had both of you together actually was a recording that I wasn't on because I was busy driving to my in-laws, which is fitting for this program. Uh, you were you were on with the uh, part two of the core one retrospective for the the first portion of Witch for Mercury. Uh, Russell, you were on more recently uh, for the Blue Blazes discussion uh, over on the main feed. Of course, we've been doing the Summer of Gunbuster, which we kicked off with the outstanding uh, comedic live action series Blue Blazes before getting into the history of Gunbuster. So I do encourage folks to check out those episodes uh, if they haven't already. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I, I had a great time revisiting Blue Blazes and talking shop with you guys, Emily, Stephen. Great time. Yeah, is that outstanding? Emily, of course, always always an excellent guest to have on. It was good to hear too. I think um, uh, obviously Gunbuster, very high profile title, deserves lots of coverage. Uh, Blue Blazes are a really good thing to fold into that. I think because that's a less well known uh, and actually you know really solid and entertaining piece in its own in its own right. Yeah, absolutely. It's been fun for us too. I think as uh, as the podcast has sort of been figuring out what it wants to do, we've been folding in more and more often 
sort of adjacent media, uh, which I think is is working out well. You know, we're, we kind of did it with the origin manga the first time around, and now we're doing it Blue Blaze with Blue Blazes, and then also going to be highlighting you know some of the translation work done by folks like the Idion, uh, as well as getting into some of the games. Which of course I'm always turning the conversation to to dank video games. Let's go ahead, get into our, our topic for today. And I wanted to get the elephant in the room out of the way because I, I worry, I, and I found myself when I was taking notes on this, constantly sort of putting, a, well, I don't know what else is going to happen in the future, like after every note. And I, I don't want to do that. I want to get the elephant in the room out of the way. The discourse about the potential length or the potential continuation, whether that would be an, an epilogue, a movie, sequel series, another season, etc., that's continued, and the extent to which it's gone is people reasonably comparing official social media posts to those official social media posts made back, for example, when Iron-Blooded Orphans was airing. So I'm wondering, you know, right now, we are episode 23, we've been told episode 24 is the finale episode. Is there more to say right now besides wait and see? Um, Thal, do you want to lead this off? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I totally get people's desire to um, observe the flight of birds and see whether the sacred chickens will eat their corn and, and, and so on. Um, uh, I mean, my guess remains what I was speculating about in our episode about the prologue way back in September uh, 2022, which is that it's a two-core show. Um, and that's based now, as it was based then, at looking uh, at trends in the industry in general uh, and in Gundam in particular, uh, and in thinking about production lead-in times. Uh, so f for this question, I, I'm inclined to kind of treat the the plot as basically an epiphenomenon, uh, just not think about what's happening in the show. Um, uh, uh, but um, we don't know. It, it's it's. <laughs> I think it's it's highly likely that this story is a two-core story. I'm not ruling out a, a sequel. Um, uh, we won't know until next week, and I wouldn't put it past this staff to have called the final episode the final episode uh, without actually making it the final episode. <laughs> so we shall see. I am applying yet another layer of clown makeup to my face, uh, even as the sweat and tears pour down. Folks, they're lying when they say final episode. They're lying when the staff members post that the story is entering its climax. All lies into tricking us into thinking that the real season two, which answers all those questions we've been having since the very beginning, is, is way off in the distance. Uh, no, no, we're done. We're done, folks. It's over. Maybe a sequel will come down the pipe one day. I, I'd definitely watch it. I'd be excited for it. But by most of my observations, this has been a runaway hit, so yeah, it's going to happen probably. But this this is it for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I think I'm I'm right there with both of you. Just that the the commercial realities, the industry trend, because that's really you know as as much as it's fun to talk about, like oh well, there's this unanswered question. The thing that dominates this, you know, is the industry, is the state of the sort of commercial project of it, and uh, and that points to at the very least a substantial break you know and if there were a sequel that sequel would be sort of the the product of a second wind that existed you know after uh you know this production has has wrapped up and finished one thing i wanted to to check in because I, I think maybe one of you is more knowledgeable than me here one of the things i've seen people ask about or talk about is uh is some kind of media event in august with the the cast is that actually a thing that would be uh, used to 
you know, distribute news about future productions or is that just like a normal media event that just promotes the existing show? Uh, Russell, do you want to, do you have anything to, I, I've seen people talk about that. Yeah. Um, these media events, I haven't seen the specific details about it, but these media events can, um, announce sequels or maybe like a little OVA at the end of, uh, the home video release. People can pin their hopes on it. We'll see. I don't, I would not like place any bets on there being a, another season or a sequel or anything. It might just be the cast showing up and talking about the show. We can, um, yeah, I, I don't observe like the industry PR structures closely enough to say whether like it's typical or not that um, things uh, might get announced and that sort of thing. And the the, the joke is always that um, whenever you're excited for an anime announcement, it's a pachinko machine. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I think actually G-Witch's audience isn't isn't the pachinko audience. Um, uh, Gundam Thunderbolt, you might you might you might get a pachinko machine out of that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think. Um, yeah, we'll just have to have to see. I wouldn't I wouldn't pin anything on on that being announced. And uh, perhaps it's worth saying we can revisit this in more detail. Perhaps one day, if if we return in a, in a you know in a in a broader sense to the show as a whole, um, I think G which has been all right in two core, but I I kind of regret the loss of the four core format. Um, I think that's a that's a shame. But that's a topic perhaps for another day. Yeah, I, I think certainly well that's that's something we'll be able to evaluate when we return for the uh for the for the core two retrospective. Um and yeah, I, I, it's hard to to know looking towards the commercial structure of things and trying to anticipate announcements. My only advice to fans is that every time you see an event that could be a potential announcement, just predict it and then eventually you might be right. This is what I did with Armored <laughs> yeah. Core six. And it took about three or four years, but eventually I was right. Thank you, Jeff Keeley, you know, who obviously I was in communication with before that announcement. So, you know, just uh, keep being fans. Maybe it'll happen and, and we'll, we'll see where it goes from there. Let's jump into it. Episode 23, Unrelenting Tenderness. This episode picks up right where we left off from the previous one with the uh, Suleta in the Calabarn engaged with Ariel's bits. Suleta is pleading for Eric to stop, and Eric, in turn, demands that Suleta stop getting in Mom's way. Uh, the other children of the coven are also, they're sort of like floating around present. I, I like the way that they're, they're visually shown. They're reminding Suleta that this plan is for Eric's benefit, and it is a matter for the people who can only live inside the data storm. And they say uh, they say Mondai, so which is which is a matter or an issue. I'm not differing from the translator here. The translator has far far better Japanese than I do. Um, it's it's also a problem or 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 a question. Um, so there's a range of different sort of senses going on there. Yeah, like sort of like a, like a thorny issue, a matter for discussion, so to speak. Mm, mm. Of course, Suleta is not persuaded by this. She refuses to turn a blind eye to what uh, her mother and Eric are up to. I just. I- I know we've uh, done this a few times in the notes, uh, but the physical toll that the Calabarn is taking on Suleta as she she dodges around is great. Uh, so much has been made of Kana Ichinose's Suleta noises over these two seasons, and the the rapid breathing really sells it. Uh, I'm glad the idea that piloting these Gundams will kill you is still firmly intact and on display. It's it's such a great performance. It's it's the it's the G witch uh, in an, in a nutshell, right? It's it's fun and you're having a great time, but it's also like all these characters suffering and dying. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really good to to bring up because I 
I was I was like wondering or concerned, you know, would be would Saleta be this um, like genetic freak who would not be affected at all? Would be sort of like that that Ari that we saw in the prologue, who was like perfectly synchronized with no discomfort at all. And the answer here is that she she's just really good at it. She still you know is suffering as as everyone else has suffered when piloting the Gundams, but uh, she's just sort of you know just doing doing the hard work and guts thing, so to speak. <laughs> It's a fun and the 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 heavy breathing of pilots um, at high permit states, which we were introduced to in the, in the prologue, um, is is a really nice touch. And I kind of think of it. Um, uh, it's a little bit like how all of the um, enhanced pilots in Iron Blooded Orphans pilot shirtless, which is obviously quite kind of hot and masculine, but but also um, uh, it is genuinely. It makes them look physically vulnerable inside the cockpit, and this is this is like a a, a different um, route to uh, not quite the same feeling, but so, you know something that sort of sense of stress, pressure, and the physical toll. And yeah, I think it works really well. Yeah, I really like making that connection because right now I I have become a, a full BattleTech novel sicko, and uh, BattleTech novels always will at least have some extended sequence where a pilot talks about the experience of wearing cooling shirts and other apparatus to stay cool in the cockpit of a battle mech. Uh, and so again, that's, you know, that's a kind of another similar thing where it is the, in this case, being boiled alive inside this massive heat generating machine. Uh, and how do you overcome that experience? Of course. Yes. Cause heat is a, is a, like a key mechanic in, in yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's very clever. Yeah. yeah. So it's not, you know, it, it's uh, you know, a bit more literal than just sort of, I guess, the data storm, which you know is a uh, is a perhaps a kind of heat, you know, is a something that is cooking you in a different way. It's just it's always really compelling to see these pilots put their bodies on the line, even as they're putting their robot bodies on the line. It's just it's just really tactile. It's really fun to yeah, see. Yeah, yeah. It's it, and that's the thing. Same thing too with the in in the way that you know pilots in this setting are ignoring the dangers of the rising permit levels. You know, again, that goes back to the tradition of, oh, your heat warning is setting off. Look, I'm going to shut that off manually. I'm not going to ignore that. I got to, you know, I got to push it harder. Uh, definitely a, a solid mecha tradition. Now, meanwhile, Lauda, my hero, no, uh, is attacking Ghoul and the team, uh, the team being, of course, the, the infiltration team that is attempting to get to Quiet Zero thanks to Saleta's distraction. Um, Felsi on the bridge of the ship leaves the bridge as she sneaks off in response to Lauda's intervention. And then of course it turns out the, the white canister that is being carried by the Demi Barding is a capsule for an infiltration team uh, comprised of Belmeria, Kananji, Fivelon, Miorne, and of course Martin. The team uh, turns off their permit tech and relies on uh, optical communication once inside the data storm uh, Mirne looks at the charm in her hand as they as they approach Quiet Zero. I love, love, love this opportunity to sort of remind us, like, w why is the thing that we rely on so important, so useful? And that's because it is like whole, uh, I guess, uh, you know, uh, like levels uh, uh, exponentially more difficult to control, to do all these things, transmit data, pilot things. All of this is much more difficult without permit. And Choo Choo, who has been an immaculate pilot every time we've seen her, I don't think I, I don't think I can think of any time where you know she really stumbled. Uh, now has difficulty for just flying in a straight line. You know, 
Uh, and then we see that here. And, and it's a reminder too, I think um, another show that does really well is Giant Robo, where it showed us how useful the Shizuma drive is, how the Shizuma drive solved mm. so many problems. And then also what the alternatives to the Shizuma drive were. Uh, you know, the oil fields of what well, I think it was Shanghai, not a happy place. Fossil fuels, yeah. not that great uh, compared to the Shizuma drive. And I think here you see the alternative to permit, not that great. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I'm a little sad that the demi Varding only appears in this episode as a kind of taxi service. Um, but, uh, uh, it, yeah, totally that, that demonstration of how tough it is to pilot without permit, really good. Um, seeing Choo Choo and Nika operate it together is fun. And I think, though the episode kind of lacks the time to, to talk about this, um, the implication is, right, that the Nika is, is supporting Choo Choo's piloting to, to kind of make up for the fact that the permit isn't um, mm-hmm. uh, filling in. Um also, shout-outs to Martin, performing his designated role as the person who screams in terror. Um, very important, and uh, uh, seemingly the only reason they have him there. I'm not sure he does very much else this episode, <laughs> so uh, good job, Martin. Um, I'm glad uh, you've sorted out your issues. Thanks, Cecilia, and uh, <laughs> um, hang in there. Yeah, no, he's really a champ. I, I, I do want to highlight, I, I had first compared him to, I think it was Alan from the Xenosaga series, who also fulfills a similar role, continuing to deliver. <laughs> You just you have to have that guy on the team that voices the worst possible scenario and just vents everybody's emotion. You just you have to have that guy there. I'm glad I I, ah, I assumed that uh, because the big battle setup had only live combatants on one side that we could avoid the sticky situation of the Earth kids casually killing for spectacle. And that would mean that the Demi Barding and Choo Choo could go fully feral for the first time. But alas, uh, perhaps that's next week. Something I'm increasingly saying a lot. Um, next week, maybe. I hope, I hope Choo Choo and the Demi Barding really get to show their stuff, at least for a couple of minutes. Yeah, I feel like we've been teased with Demi Barding things. Or also just Choo Choo's uh, capacity for violence. You know, heard the shot of her holding the rifle like a club, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. <laughs> uh, I, I, I do want something of that. I always like to make a note of where the where this show the witch mercury deploys things like the title card is very playful with where it deploys the title card you never really know where it's going to show up here we get the title card and then that takes us straight into the op yeah it's a it's a fun little switch from the normal order we saw the same positioning for the title card in episode 14 uh, and we've also seen them drop the title card very near the end uh, of the whole episode in episode 20. And I have a feeling there might be a few episodes where it comes in the middle as well. So they've really been uh, hopping around with that. And even the title card timing in, in G-Witch gets some thought. Yeah, it's, it's clever and it keeps you on your toes. And a few times you, you kind of forget the title and then they drop it and you just say, oh, no. <laughs> right. It was, it was episode 20 where they, you know, they put it at the end where it was like <laughs> the end of hope. And it was like right after Norea gets blasted, I think, or <laughs> something like that. Now, we should mention that uh, like other shows, the OP has been updated from time to time. And in order to help meet our unfulfilled desire for more footage of the new mechs, we are seeing uh, footage of the Calabarn, Demi Barden, Shortset all now feature in this in this OP, this episode. Uh, and in particular, Suleta, you know, is being shown at the controls of the Calabarn. She now has the permit markings on her face as she controls the Calabarn. It's good. It's very Gundam Wing finally finishing the second opening <laughs> two or three episodes before the finale, something like that. Some really cool cuts in there. 
it really has the quality of like uh like and you have me thinking about Gundam Wing now, like the way they would play rhythm and motion at the end of an episodes for like four or five episodes straight, like um <laughs> like the Monty Python bit where the guy's charging at you at the gate you know, the night and he keeps getting closer and closer. And that, that was rhythm and motion at the, during Gundam Wing. So the fight between the short set and the Darabaldi continues. Uh Lauda is unloading both his emotional issues and also the short set's incredible array of features. Uh, in particular, Lauda continues to attribute much of what has gone wrong to Miorane's involvement with the Gundams. Yeah, this is um, really nice stuff going on in the sequence and throughout in, in the duel between uh, the Daryl Bolde and the short set. Uh, many, me included, thought that lots of short set kits were, were doomed to languish unbuilt when the show made it clear that Lauda, not Suleta, would be piloting it. Uh, well, Lauda remains a nexus of anti-cool, but the uh, the suit itself is pretty great. It has a lot of really cool individual small transformation elements. It doesn't have one big transformation, but lots of individual bits that, that transform, which I love. Um, my favourite shot of it in this episode is the one where uh, its four attachments fan out from its back to resemble four fingers of a left hand, with the suit's right arm and gun forming a kind of thumb. Uh, I'm not sure we can attribute any particular deep symbolism to that, but, you know, wow, cool robot. It's a real standout suit. Uh, I love that large sword that's also a gun that also splits into the four bits. Uh, That shot of them forming a little shoulder cape had me thinking about G's Gundam Rose, very in line with the noble dueling theme that has been running through a lot of these suits lately. Definitely, and there's at least one shot in this episode in which Lauda has the suit assume... Uh, uh, one of the formal stances from Japanese swordsmanship. Um, uh, I forget exactly where in the episode it comes, but when he raises the sword above his head with 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 both um, both hands, uh, I believe that's a particular set um, form. I don't know, don't know enough about Japanese swordsmanship, but uh, yeah. I think it's also worth saying that, like, as much as Lauda is absolutely uh, uncool, there was there was a great tweet that like. <laughs> accused him of like being the guy at the bookstore with the worst media literacy or something like that you know uh that was an outstanding shout outs to whoever did that and but yeah, I the, do- the, the, he, yeah he thinking that the person as you say yeah, thinking that the person to whom all these problems could be traced is me arena right <laughs> yeah yeah but i will say his piloting ability for you know for probably not having that much time to familiarize himself with a suit that has uh, an astonishing array of unique features. Uh, I think he did pretty good. You know, I'm kind of convinced that he could win <laughs> fights of lots of people in this show. And Gull um, himself, in this episode and elsewhere, has uh, now got quite a long record of doing quite well when he's outgunned. You know, fighting fighting more powerful suits mm. and and um, kind of coping. Um, and uh, it, it does kind of look like either Vim Turk was actively, and this wouldn't be surprising, you know, actively picking small children who were, who were really, you know, <laughs> had the potential, you know, really good reaction times or something. Uh, or, you know, he just lucked out. You know, the, the, the other houses were, were um, selecting their, their people to transform into to, um, model Elans with ideal piloting skills and so on. And, and Vim Turk was just kind of randomly picking kids who would be fantastic um, duelists. But yeah, the, the, both Turk brothers, um, at the end of the day, a reasonably competent performance, doomed generally to be defeated because of circumstances. <laughs> and to be honest, they kind of both deserve that to some extent. So, you know, I, I'm not, my heart is not weeping. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. Yes, that is also very true. The, um, 
you know, that is the thing about the Jeturk clan, right? Is that they're sort of the, um, I, I hate to say like the actual or authentic heirs, but they're not adopted and they're not manufactured. So they're certainly different compared to the other, the other major, uh, corporations. Or loud. I, I don't know what the status of louder and Gule because louder's adopted, isn't he? Cause we have this flashback. I think he was a half brother. Oh, good point. Yes, I believe yeah. that's I what the yes, character I'm, profile on the website says. I'm misremembering says. The, in the, mm. the dense thicket of character details. Yes, yes. There's very much the idea of like the old classic nobility where Ghoul is the, the, the main son and Lauda's mm. sort of the backup, so he's having to overcompensate. So Ghoul probably has the more natural talent, but Lauda's putting in 150% effort <laughs> just, to, just to get Vim's eye, and he just never quite gets it. Training to feel, also, go ahead. You go feel ahead. bad for the jerk boys, but yeah, at the end of the day, they are there to kind of lose. Yeah, he he saw he saw Garmazabi and said, "I got to be trained to be an authentic son." And it's probably <laughs> worth briefly registering the way that um, uh, how to put this. Um, if we think back to Gule's presentation at the beginning of the show, um, he was a very he was a nasty piece of work. I mean, it's it physically violent to to Mirene and her surroundings clearly very possessive of her but also kind of regarding essentially everything as, as his own plaything um, I, I've seen people talk about redemption, that's not a paradigm that I particularly use for characters who are at the end of the day just artifices and I think also that that redemption paradigm comes from a particular, in, in Anglophone culture comes from a particular Christian heritage which is not good or bad but you know perhaps isn't always recognised um, uh, I think um it's worth pausing. I think we could all pause and think about what we make of. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily something we need to discuss now, but we in generally, the community, the community of viewers, including the listeners, might want to kind of pause and think what, 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 what we make of Gul's story and how the, um, how the show has handled him. But he has changed quite a lot, um, and uh, he's in a very different place now. Yeah, I yep. think let's, let's put a, a pin in this, because I want to come back to this when we get to the moment of his well his fate for mm. this episode at least <laughs> yeah um, which i think will will be probably the the time to to dig into that because i certainly have have some thoughts into that we do get a a phone call an exciting uh someone has decided to stand up and and speak today the space assembly league is watching all of this action unfold from a safe distance or hopefully safe distance when they receive a phone call from an approaching vessel Guston Parch, the Space Assembly League inspector, wants the Operation HQ to take a call from Delling Rembrandt, who is now up and talking. Reminder, he was not talking, speaking in the previous episode. Delling wants to call an emergency special session so the League can reconsider its decision to intervene in the Benerit Group's affairs. And this is the sort of corporate judo that Mirene was pulling within the Benerit group uh, in, in episode seven, um, though it's only, it seems, going to be partially successful here. Yeah, I think it's really funny that, that Delling is doing this bit because it, it, it feels like the exact sort of bit that Delling would have been inclined to swat away, you know, mm. in those episodes, <laughs> right? Where, you know, Prospera said, well, almost Gundam means it isn't a Gundam. And then Delling says, no. <laughs> it's it's a Gundam like what are you talking about and here I mean not, the argument can't be quite mapped the same but I, I think you know what Delling is going to experience is the same thing where it says oh well I can instigate this stalling tactic and the uh you know we're going to discover of course that the head president I don't know what his title is of the Space Assembly League has other things in mind 
going back to redemption, yeah, um, uh, again, this is another thing that's going to be pushed off to the next episode. I'm curious how they're going to bring Delling to the end of his story. He's seemingly gone through a change, kind of off screen, and now that we're supposed to feel sympathetic for him because he has a slight relationship with uh, Miorine, we'll see. I think this is going to be a, a thorny subject when we get to it. Yeah, I think it's... Um, I'm not going to rush into kind of evaluating the show as a moral fable, but I think a lot of people, quite understandably, will probably feel unsatisfied if if the the show has nothing to say at its end about Delling and Kananji in particular, I think, if we think back to the prologue, because, you know, those are those are two figures... Um, responsible for for um quite a lot of murder to put not not to find a point on it um yeah we'll, we'll see we'll see yeah i like i hate to it, i feel like i'm being such a killjoy by by saying it but i know there are some uh some uh giant robot fm listeners who are like i still got delling on my list of villains that need to be dealt with <laughs> and y- you're right to view them as villains I don't know if the arc of this television series at this time regards them as a you know a villain or a conflict that needs to be resolved. And of course, in some ways, it wouldn't be. And I'm not sure this is what the show is doing. I don't know whether this is how it, uh, the show expects us or invites us to take it. It it would be quite Gundam if if you know part of the way the story wraps up is actually. Some of the people who are left on the board have bloody hands, and you know maybe they've improved in some ways, but but basically they're they're you know <laughs> what we have at the end is some improvements in some areas, but but also a lot of complicity and a lot of people left around who, in some ideal world, maybe wouldn't have any power anymore. I hope Miorina at least gets to punch him really good <laughs> in the face. Like, <laughs> at least give us that. Yeah, I mean we're not we're not that far removed you know, to, to once again invoke IBO. The ending of IBO, um, you know, certainly less uh, less sunshine and roses than what we appear to be heading towards here. So now Eri uh, continues to plead with Suleta to stop, saying that she doesn't want to hurt Suleta, but Suleta is stating that this plan, you know, if allowed to proceed, would gobble up the fronts jeopardize human lives harry says she won't hurt anyone dot 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 unless they get in our way and then mom won't hesitate and there's uh while this is happening um in in classic condom style people shouting at each other while the action is happening uh there's a really spectacular sustained action sequence at this point animated by uh, daisuke shibukawa um it's it's conceptually impressive because uh, like several other action shots in this episode, it keeps moving the Caliban in and out of depth uh, from very close up to, to far distance. So the action has this real tangibility. Um, at least as I experience it, this is this is kind of very engaging and gripping. It emphasizes the Caliban's mobility and just how hard Sudet is having to move this thing around to avoid being shot. Um, uh, these shifts in depth and the near constant changes in angle on the Caliban's shape are both big, tough uh, animation challenges, uh, but they're handled beautifully here. Uh, and on top of that, um, there's some really lovely effect animation for the Caliban's thrusters, which make this really charming, uh, uh, ever-changing shape when the suit's in the distance. It's very fluid. A lot of it's animated on the ones, so 24 drawings per second, which is a lot of drawings. Um, 
higher numbers of drawings don't automatically mean like good animation but but they do often or sometimes at least i think often correlate with with um with it and here i think they do uh it's also a really impressive shot from the compositing point of view in photography they had to layer shibukawa's key animation onto the dense particle background of the the data tempest sort out the intricate effects for the thrusters on the gun bit zooming into and out of the frame and manage the lighting from the thrusters and the laser fire and make that all look coherent as though it's all happening in the same in the same physical space um so overall i think this episode shows some signs of a messy production uh certainly the credits list suggests that um i don't think it's as visually coherent as some of the other episodes but like episode 11 and to a lesser extent episode 12 back at the end of the first cur um this does contain some really standout sequences which are genuinely impressive um action animation and character animation and uh yeah just like really really good stuff um uh, hail to shibukawa for a job well done um in this bit Oh yeah, definitely. It's it's great chaos. A lot of funky playing around with proportions and posing and those rapid fire frames. Uh, I love the sound effect of the Calabarn's thrusters. It's very unique, uh, very fitting for something that's flying around with a broom <laughs> on its arm. Um, somebody pointed out that it rides on the broom for a couple of frames. I missed those, but I, I have to go back and look for those because that, that sounds awesome. Yeah, this is really a sequence that rewards like stopping and picking through it. Um, one of the things, that, like the first time I watched it, I, I said, "Okay, there's like a ton of impressive stuff." Again, the way it comes in and out of focus, cl- near and far. What also really delighted me was I was listening to it, and I've always loved the sound design in this. Hearing the sound of weapons fire, the sound of the thrusters, but I was like, "That sounds like metal on metal." Is there like? some kind of you know a, a physical interaction going on here and as i stopped it and went through i actually saw you know the calabarn was like kicking bits <laughs> it was literally <laughs> kicking ariel's bits uh, it was just inc- it happens multiple times too I, I i took one frame of it just to to share in the notes mm-hmm. but um it, it was just really really outstanding to uh to work in all of these elements so quick while we're having this this back and forth you know as in classic gundam fashion about you know the the rhetoric of, of what's going on I wanted to get takes real quick here. This is a good opportunity to see uh, because the Calabarn really truly got introduced last episode. Uh, do either of you have Calabarn takes that you want to share? I mean, I think uh, I, I like it, and I'm I'm now planning to get my hands on a kit of it if I can. I think it, it's a really really fun design. Uh, I'm not sure I have any really grand developed ideas about it. Um, the name, of course. It kind of plays into something that uh, people, not not particularly me, but but some people were speculating about much earlier in 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 Gwitch's run, which is the sense that actually, in some ways, if Suleta has a character that she represents in um in this sto- in this story, uh in in the Tempest, her analog might might be Caliban, um, the the kind of um strange uh figure rejected by by Prospero, um. And the other thing I, I noticed about it is it, actually quite rare. We, we've been saying about the thrusters; it's quite rare for a Gundam design, a protagonist Gundam design in particular, to be so thruster-led. Like the the, the thruster mm. block and um, rifle is like the core of the concept, and that's that's kind of fun. And and dare, I can't think off the top of my head. There are squillions of Gundam designs. I'm sure there are other examples, but I can't think off the top of my head of of, of another one that's kind of super obvious. 
I, I'm I'm a big fan of the Calabarn. I love the I love when they trot out like prototype mobile suits that aren't quite fully armored. They're not painted yet. They're not really ready to be shown off. I love that. It makes me think about uh, the base form of the unicorn, which was always my favorite from that series. I loved like the thin silhouette of it, the sort of asymmetry where it has that huge thruster mounted to one of the arms, but then it can still use a rifle or a beam saber in the other one. Um, I will whistle inappropriately every time I see that V-fin. <laughs> good V-fin right there. Uh, no, I, yeah, big, big fan of the Calabarn. Yeah, the more I sit with it, I think for the reasons that you just mentioned, Russell, uh, it makes me think, of course, of the Tall Geese, which represents many of those qualities, you know, unpainted, prototype, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's definitely um, a good way to look at it. I, I know I definitely remarked last episode that was one of the reasons I enjoyed it was because it had that it had that prototype feeling by virtue of having the, the white color scheme. So definitely uh, good animation, good design. Uh, you you love to see it, and we'll, I think we'll probably have some more to say about some some of the animation as well, and some other parts of this episode before we're done. Now, Suleta points out that you know this issue that Mom won't hesitate if someone gets in the way <laughs> is exactly why she is opposing Mom. That is, in fact, the the reason. Uh, so, that, and also, so that Prospera, in uh, w specifically, won't become some evil magician. And again here, um, she's uh, Ichinose is keeping up the performance of, of managing these lines while um, while breathing heavily, which continues to be really good. In response, the aerial lightning kicks the Calabarn. Once again, a great opportunity for me to promote Gunbuster. Please watch Gunbuster. Enjoy our coverage of it. Suleta, at this point, is asserting her love for her mother, stating that when mom cries, I want to hug her. We see Prospera overhear this, and Stoneface, with her mask on, um, makes no visible response. As Eri ratchets up the pressure on Suleta, something pulses from the top of Quiet Zero, and the data storm subsequently dissipates. No one seems to know what happened, neither the Belmeria infiltration team nor Prospera and her henchmen. Eri, uh, or I see the, the visualization of Eri that we see floating in space, uh, turns backwards towards the top of Quiet Zero and seems to address the party interfering, uh, but does not share any further info on this entity that caused the data interference. I think some people refer to it as data interference. Prospera, at that point, leaves the bridge of Quiet Zero to do pest control, or, or as I immediately thought, um, to do the, uh, the Solid Snake from Metal Gear Solid. I, I gotta go swat a noisy fly, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> so this seems to be the biggest mystery out of this episode right now, because when I, when I first watched it, did my first casual watch over my breakfast Sunday morning, I said, well, I, I missed something. I, you know, I watched it once through. I must have missed something. No big deal. Uh, but I've since then, I've seen a lot of people asking what happened here. My understanding is that we do not have a clear answer from the episode at this time. Uh, Thal, what are your theories? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think this is a late example of Gwitch's tendency um, uh, uh, to have these elements where you, you are just expected to sort of say, well, that's, that's curious, that's interesting, we don't know what it is yet, 
and the show in its in its good time will um will show us what it is um uh, and that's happened enough times now the show has come through with those things enough times um that uh one one can have some faith in in the show i'm i'm thinking again of princess principal one of one of the many antecedent antecedents to to this show um i've seen several people guess independently that it might be notret mirene's mother living on in the data storm uh, which would fit in various ways it would be thematically sort of satisfying and and um uh it it would also fit with the fact that at this very point eri has the deming bar the demi barding and its cargo and therefore mirene uh surrounded so this is sort of if someone's going to intervene in mirene's interest um this might be when it would happen but yeah i think we're just you know we we shall wait and see yeah this is definitely another just teaser for something coming later uh We'll see. There's not a whole lot later left, so hopefully we, <laughs> hopefully that pays off. Um, people have yes suggested it's not Rhett. Uh, that would I would buy that. Uh, there's definitely a familiarity that Aries speaks with when uh, talking about that force. So it's definitely if it is not Rhett, they had gone to Quiet Zero, kind of synced up and said, okay, these are our goals. These are what we want to accomplish, and whatever that force is, uh, maybe changed its mind at some point. So yeah, we'll see. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to look out for my, my boy, Steven hero, and I'm going to speak this into the universe. <laughs> maybe it's Dr. Cardo. Mm, Probably yeah. not. I think no Trey is the better answer, but, <laughs> <laughs> but had to, had to get one last, in, one last Dr. Cardo is still alive in there. I was I was thinking about her recently. Yeah, how people were insisting like she's definitely coming back. She's definitely going to be a force in this show, and she's been name checked. I think once, yeah, twice since the prologue. Yeah, I, th- I think it was the <laughs> one time when what was it Murane watched the video on Gundam technology that was it was Cardo speaking. Yeah, yeah. No, I I for the longest my pet theory is still that the um the the Ox Earth uh, goggle tan line man. Like I don't know his I don't even think he has a name, but I, I the design is stuck with me. Obviously, I'm speaking in on a podcast. Um maybe he'll show up, you know? We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> now the head, and as I said, I'm calling him the head. I don't know if he has a title. Do you know do either of you know if he has a formal title, this head nah. of the Space Assembly League? Nah. All right, I'm getting I'm getting yeah, in, yeah, yeah, shakes of the head here. So we don't know. We don't we don't have a, a name or a title for this gentleman who is Clearly very villainous, though. Clearly establishes himself unquestionably as a villain. Uh, The head of the Space Assembly League informs the Fleet Admiral that it is time to use Lagrange One's interplanetary laser power transmission system. So, as it happens, Japan, in in reality, is... um experimenting with uh, a space-based energy transfer system in this case down to earth so satellites that would collect solar energy and then beam it to receivers on on earth via microwaves um also more more pressingly gundam has a long dishonorable tradition of old people in distant command centers wielding giant solar array super weapons near the end of a story not just gundam uh, you can think of be invoked if you've seen it Aeon. um i know i wonder whether the, the, the namelessness of this this chap uh, I mean, it. Maybe we'll find out who he is and what he does. It, it might be defensible in that. I mean, I don't think anyone remembers the the names, even if they if they even had names, of the room full of Federation officers who are in charge of the Federation's solar weapon at the end of the original Mobile Suit Gundam. I mean, one of the um, kind of 
one of the points the Gundam often makes around this time is that somewhere there's often a room full of people who uh, uh, think that you are an acceptable casualty, um, <laughs> and they are, you know, they're kind of faceless officers or they're faceless bureaucrats, and and um, and they're going to fire the sort of race system and then go home to their families, and <laughs> um, so there is a kind of defence of, of his namelessness, but also, yeah, I, I, the show just is just like here's a here's an old man in a room with a sort of super <laughs> weapon, um, deal with it. It's very in line, yeah, with the casual or the callous bureaucrats sitting very far away from the actual like heat of the emotion of battle and really not caring about any of it and just trying to wipe it all off the board and casualties be damned. They just want the problem to go away and their status quo to be maintained. Which, of course, is um, and I, I'm not sure this is necessarily intentional on the show's part, but I mean, if we think back to the prologue, uh, I mean that is that is Delling in the prologue, right? Is is yeah. he's <laughs> he sends these guys off to do this wet operation um at Vanadis and, and coolly does his his political speech um and and seems deeply unconcerned by the fact that he's got quite a lot of blood on his hands. Um so yeah. Yeah, it it is an escalation, uh, you know, as as we learn here, you know, just I guess to give some more context to it, uh you know, the Admiral asks, like, well what about the special session that that Delling requested and and the bad man replies no such request has been received uh the ILTS as it is uh, as is abbreviated in the subtitles uh, had been developed as a ruse intentionally we told people it was for power transmission but it was always meant to be a weapon system uh when the admiral protests that this use of the weapon would devastate Lagrange 4 and much of Benaret group's space uh that man acknowledges uh, some selfless party is going to have to lead the rebuilding <laughs> efforts to account for the league's blunder, this shameless, terrible blunder. And then, of course, waiting in the wings are the pale crones, along with Elon Prime, to seize control of the Bennett group and take advantage of this opportunity to rebuild. It's an ill wind that blows nobody any good. Um, if nothing else, this is a time-efficient way to to let uh, Pale still make a kind of late play for for victory. Um, uh, and I guess I'm, I'm kind of glad that the the end solution of the story isn't the the league turning up and playing the the genuinely impartial peacemaking power broker. I mean, the 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 suggestion is at the moment that there isn't anything like that um, in the Adstella setting, and that. Um, uh, I, I feel more comfortable with that. Yeah, it is very thematically in line with what the series has been doing of corporations and governing bodies basically managing "quote unquote" disasters for financial and powerful gains. Um, they're they're already accounting for the massive destruction and loss of life, and already writing those contracts for who's going to pick it up again. I one of the the yes, totally one of the running. Um, persistent features of the show from the smallness of individual duels at Astacassia up to the Space Assembly League uh, um, accidentally on purpose building a giant solar system uh, super weapon uh, is that the people who are on top are going to write the rules and then if the rules don't work for them anymore they're going to rewrite the rules um, uh, and, th- and that, certainly, yeah, that certainly totally fits yeah yeah yeah, I, I think it's you know rewriting the rules and also that that non-compliance with anything with with the rules with the rewritten rules with any sort of moral norms, uh, the cost of non-compliance can always be accounted for. That 
you know, if you do create all these problems, you know, you, you can, you can just pay for them somehow, you know, you can, in, in this case, you know, you can take advantage of a dispute to hand it off to this other party. And in the process, you know, re- do the thing that you were aiming to do any, which was reduce the power of, of the Bennett group. Uh, yeah, no, I'm really glad too, that the, they have found a way, um, for the pale crones to still kind of be like this coven of, of evil witches. Like I, I've, I've always felt, um, I think it was especially too after I remember in the mid season after Vim died, I really thought that, um, like you couldn't put these characters under a microscope. Like you couldn't actually in- expect the viewer to tell them apart or to know their names. And I don't mean that like viewers are dumb. I mean, like, I don't think that was the expectation. I think the show wanted you to regard them as this sort of evil uh, council, this evil association. And this is a way to sort of keep them at arm's length, but still have them be very relevant and very much a threat. Um, So just this part really works for me. Yeah. And that also, of course, marks the, the middle of the episode as we jump on to the next part. So now the infiltration team has entered quiet zero, uh, led by Kananji Kananji refusing to hand a gun to students of a mobile suit Academy. I I admit, I tried to summarize. That was a little bit of commentary there (laughs) tries to have uh, Belmeria hold a gun to hold a piece. Belmeria is uncomfortable with this. Uh, and then upon opening some nearby doors, uh, the team is confronted by armed Harrows. Yeah. Harrow, not Genki. Um, uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, friend of the pod, uh, Shkin, um, uh, pointed us on Twitter to some ancillary information about uh, information about the show. Design notes from uh, Kenji Teraoka and Takayuki Yanase. Uh, and these design notes, um, remark that the the kind of underlying idea in the show is that the the harrow os uh, and often physical harrows um uh, harrow os i guess shades of pat labor um uh that that's widely used to run anything that needs a computer especially a portable computer so armed harrows and and as uh, shkin observed uh, there might be a harrow running the solar ray system as well um it's an interesting thing to contemplate i hadn't um I hadn't actually thought of this when I put these notes together, but I guess, actually, I don't know whether this is deliberate, although actually the colour palette of the setting isn't far off. If you know your anime, and the people making this show definitely have seen a lot of anime, um, uh, it's it's hard not to see people breaking into a corridor and be being confronted by um, autonomous uh, armed systems and think not think of Pat Labour 2. Um the the finale of Pat Labor Two. I don't know. I need, it doesn't feel like it's a it's a, a super on the nose. Hi, this is Pat Labor Two. In the way that like the first episode of G Witch is really pointedly. Hi everyone. This is Utena. Do you like this? Um, so that it's not it's not doing that. But um, I wonder whether there's a there's a hint of that going on here too. That's fine. I didn't even put that together. But yeah, I can see that. I have to point out this is the closest thing that Earth House has gotten to a field trip throughout the old show. <laughs> they have a chaperone, they get to go to a new place and learn new things and see some awful horrors. I'm I'm glad to see Gwitch acknowledging that horrors are weird little guys that will kill without a second thought. I've never trusted them and you shouldn't either. The way Thou has brought up and I mean of course uh shout out to Shkin uh, who also uh did the uh the the, the banner art for Giant Robot FM uh, excellent artist uh, excellent follow on Twitter. Uh 
this information is very useful because I'm now thinking of uh, of Harrow's, and this was already kind of true in the setting, but I think saying it out loud kind of gives it some extra effect. There's been a lot of discourse lately about the way that uh, the people who do tinkering, who, who people who do makers with electronic spaces, uh, will use off-the-shelf components to do things. And, and you know, this is always kind of true. General processors are, in fact, general processors. You can use them for all sorts of applications. This came up recently in the wake of the news story with the submersible that imploded. In particular, there was a Logitech controller uh, that people identified. And on one hand, it is a very common off-the-shelf controller that has been used for tons of things. Game controllers are common. People understand how to hold them, to press buttons on them. People also wondered, was this the best thing to use in, in such a, a contraption? And I'm definitely now thinking like, how could I, what, you know, like, obviously it would be too dark humor to put a harrow in that submersible <laughs> at this time. I would not draw that even if I could draw, but it does leave you to wonder, you know, where will these guys turn up? Thou already, I think, uh, or, or, or was it you who speculated there might be a harrow in the solar race or was that skin? I think it was. I think it was Skin who okay. was pointing out that yeah, there might be one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but a very that, reasonable, that, yeah, a very reasonable assumption. The or, harrow in the solar ray system is the least Genki of all the harrows. <laughs> um, uh, um, yeah, I think. Um, and again, you know, not to not to put too much weight on um, what is you know a, an entertaining TV show. Um, uh, the orange arrow that you can put into anything and it, and it'll run it and the anything can be like a, a gun platform is in a really easy it's a really easy shorthand way of of maybe beginning to think about like yeah as you say off the shelf stuff well um uh, uh right now um in ukraine both sides are um jury rigging all kinds of things um with off the shelf components and the um the US aligned parts of the world have put an embargo on exporting all kinds of pretty consumer level things to to Russia on the basis that if you put those things together you know you can you can make a cruise missile or whatever and and um so uh we don't have big orange harrows that you can like <laughs> I don't know whether in Gwitch's setting there's a little harrow inside every missile that's not um but um you know and this sort of the way that off the shelf stuff can be militarized is is actually like that is a very g witch thing to to have in the mix so yeah yeah totally i'd be curious if some side material because there's not enough time to explore it left uh to find out who manufactures these horrors <laughs> would it be the venerate group are they making the gun platforms and then also making the horrors that, uh, that that would be a really interesting way to explore this universe a little further is just to see how all of this stuff comes together, the companies doing it, the regulatory bodies that are saying, yeah, this is okay. You can have this Haro toy that also fits into a gun platform. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I know we're, we are scheduled to get some sort of uh, side material, right? Uh, like a, a spinoff or something of a... Well, there's already, there's already a, a side story manga about something to do with the Lefrith units and I haven't I haven't been following it very closely okay. my my general yeah. policy with with Gundam is not to chase mm -hmm. the side stories of TV shows unless one really catches my eye that's not a you know I'm all in favor of people following them but um, and I would I'm, I'd be really quite surprised if there wasn't more yeah I'm just saying that, that would be I would be curious to see you know if that kind of setting idea uh, you know would would be expanded in that area because I'm sure there's always we are now probably in the Ad Stella timeline there will always be space 
for another witch in the same way that there will always be space for another Gundam prototype in the one-year war or another Jedi to survive Order 66. There can always be one more. Lauda's assault on Ghoul is taking its toll. Uh, the Darabaldi has become almost completely shredded apart. And in the process, there are a few shots uh, of the of Ghoul's Darabaldi with just its legs missing, which feels like it might be a nod to to Gundam tradition. Um, also, just want to say how uh, fantastic the wrist-mounted rotary cluster munitions cannon on the Schwartz set is. That's a that's a lovely sequence of words. Wrist-mounted rotary cluster munitions cannon. Um, so uh, yeah, yeah, well played. Maybe my favorite weapon on the short set. It is really <laughs> outstanding. Uh, you you do love you do love to see the guy roll around. I I, w- I was just playing Armored Core three last night, and I was having trouble getting past a mission. And I thought, what if I turned my arms into giant bazookas with rotary cannons? And it worked. Actually, it was fantastic. <laughs> so you know, hopefully, Armored Core six will will let us all do the same. Setting up one final encounter. Lauda announces his intent to hold Ghoul accountable for the death of their father and the injury suffered by Petra and declares himself Lauda Jeturk. At the last moment, as this encounter is about to happen, Ghoul shuts off his blade, giving Lauda pause, but not, bef- but not stopping Lauda's blade from piercing the Darabaldi. It is at this moment that we see a flashback of the first time Ghoul and Lauda met, where Ghoul welcomed Lauda as a brother. And this definitely felt like an invitation to expect that Ghoul was going to die. Um, I like the, the really consistent presentation of Vim de Turk here. So uh, he's very, very large um, in this flashback. His size accentuated by his wearing his uh, coat cloak fashion. And um, he's intimidatingly physically possessive. He's grasping Lauda's shoulder um, in a way that presages the kind of physically abusive way that he treated um, his children uh, uh, in earlier episodes of the show. You can see where the, the kind of demanding, unreflective, um, violent father that we saw in the first season of the show came from. And perhaps, just perhaps, there's a hint here of what's made Lauda so possessive as well, in that he's, he's been brought into this family, and that clearly matters a lot, but also, as with Gule, like the primary model for masculinity that both of these these characters have have had is is someone who's who's a bit of a mess um a much smaller thing but the colony curve replacing the sky in the background of these shots works really nicely lovely to be reminded these are spatians they come from big money in space Uh, as somebody who has charted ghoul's uh, character development through his hair uh the (laughs) confirmation that he dyed it later after this scene with the shock of pink as a sort of symbol and pride is uh, definitely worth noting. And I had to just stop and appreciate <laughs> I think the, the style here is really interesting. Cause I, Thal already commented on the, um, you know, on Vim's, you know, personal styling, uh, his, the outfit he wore. I also think it's worth talking about just sort of like the appearance of the area, the, uh, the architecture, it is set on a colony, but it is this. Um, it is doing this thing of mimicking past wealthy classes, uh, which is just so so interesting to me. That you know, the one the whenever you establish this new class of privilege, one of the first things they'll do is go turn around and mimic some previous class of privilege, uh, and that's just the sneaking that in. Because I, I I worry that it can feel like kind of. Um, 
I don't know, like throwaway or, 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 or lazy. Like, we got to put something in there. But I think it really is, you know, very much intentional because, again, the Jeturk clan is the clan that is sort of the most um, normal. I, I hesitate to say that, <laughs> but the, well, the most conventional perhaps is better. Mm. Conventionally aristotic, or, um, aristocratic, I should say. Yeah. Does it? I mean, I'm just pulling the the house up now. I'm not a um, not a, an expert on on architecture, and especially not American architecture. But it looks like maybe a, like an American Gothic style of um, vernacular um, house. I'm sure that there'll be listeners who know far more about architecture than me. Um, the other funny thing is that they they have what would we would consider, I think, uh, a street level, uh, like a pavement or sidewalk street lamp in the middle of their lawn, which feels like an anachronistic... I don't know whether this is true or not, but it does feel like an anachronistic... Um, uh, as a very wealthy family, we're going to have the, the, the kind of trappings of, as you said, of kind of past uh, wealth and power, which which means like a kind of Victorian-style wrought iron streetlight in, in the middle of our lawn as lighting, but also as a kind of feature. I could be completely wrong about that, but um, uh, that's what it looks like to me. Yeah, this, this is egg on my face here. I grew up in a, in a, a Victorian Gothic house, so I probably should be able to identify this, but I'm not. <laughs> I'm not 100 percent certain. <laughs> so, we'll we'll leave it to to an expert to uh, to hopefully identify the housing in the future. Coming back to the present, to this uh, to this moment in which we are expecting after this flashback, Ghoul's death. Uh, Ghoul apologizes and says that he will never run from Lauda or their father again. Lauda watches as a ruptured Darabalde spurts fuel before likely exploding, except Felsi shows up with a uh, a gun that shoots a flame retardant material. I'm going to call it a glue gun in the fashion of Prey uh, until, until I learn an actual name for it. Felsi uh, prevents the explosion by covering the uh, remains of the Darabalde in this uh, flame retardant material announcing that this death this death occurring because of a sibling spat would not actually be that funny uh, which which ghoul agrees with that sentiment so i'm like split on this uh i i think i might have stolen uh part of a language of a russell tweet here so i apologize for, for that it might have been <laughs> might have stolen a little bit of it but I think Ghoul refusing to plunge the sword in. Like, we knew this moment was going to happen. This moment that was going to mirror the encounter between Ghoul and Vim at the end of the first core. Uh, so, certainly expected this. And of course, what we see here is that Ghoul is a different person than he was. He is choosing. He is choosing to put a loved one before himself. He's not quite at Suleta's level of maturity, where he's like putting everyone before himself. But he's willing to put his brother before himself, which is development. It is something. And then, as things are about to play out, Felsi intervenes, and what I'm having trouble placing here is, I know Felsi is a fan favorite in the way Gundam tertiary secondary characters are fan favorites. Lots of fun character fan art. I do love it. It's enjoyable. It's a ton of fun. But I'm not sure if I can really place some sort of arc on what it means for Felsi to have intervened in this moment. And the thing I stole was I specifically wrote down that it felt like a coin flip. Yeah, I think um, I, I, I don't think Felsi is one of the characters who's written to have development beyond, you know, getting over the fact that Choo Choo is an Earthian and so on. Um, uh, I think the um, 
so the Ainguel killing his father had this um, uh, tragic quality, right? In the, in the in the Guel didn't know he was fighting his father, and his father didn't know that he was that he was fighting his son. Um, but uh, there's this horrifying moment of recognition um, at, at the end of the fight. Um, it has that quality of tragedy in, in that it, it involves people who are not perfect, but who are also kind of muddling through and doing things that one might expect them to do, and those things turn out to bring about these terrible, cruel consequences. Here, of course, they actually know, both know, uh, brothers know who, the, who he, the, their opponent is. I'm kind of happy to roll with Felsi's intervention because, um, not really for Felsi, but because it, as a comment on the brothers, it kind of works in that the, the goop gun is a very funny step down from the serious family tragedy that she's, she's averting um, conceptually, visually, and hourly, and the, the noise it makes when she fires it. It's a nice example of, of Bathos with a B, you know, going from, going from depth, um, of falling rather from height to depth. Um, and uh, it, it's not a bad rejoinder to, to the story of Gyul and Nada. I would, I would actually think less of the show if it if it respected Gyul and especially Lauda too much. Um, and so on that on that level, um, I think I, I'm kind of okay with it. Um, yeah, I, I think that is the the idea of introducing some sort of levity here as a way to ratchet down the, the potential tragedy, like. That's a human thing. That's that works. And of course, there's, there's the fu- go ahead, Russell. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, as Thal was saying, there's a there is a good comic beat to it's just a bunch of bro- it's just two brothers squabbling, and we just kind of need to set them down and put them on timeout for a minute. So why not do it in the most embarrassing way? I think um, also the and obviously Ghoul and uh, um, and Lauda fighting is a parallel to Suleta and Eri fighting and their, their, their siblings. Um, uh, and um, something that's quite common in lots of narratives across lots of different times and places is uh, you know, having a, a, high, a high conflict and a low conflict that's like uh, a parody or, or has a relationship to the high conflict. So the, um, the example I'm going to use, just because it's at the top of my mind, is a, a, very, a very classical one, or classic, not classical, um, is uh, in the Mort d'Arthur, um, uh, Lancelot is in this kind of tragic, destructive love triangle with Guinevere and Arthur, um, but the middle third of the Mort d'Arthur is about Tristram, and Tristram is also in a tragic love triangle with King Mark of Cornwall and Isolt, um, but the love triangle is uh, at a slightly lower, slightly more comic, not not totally, but slightly more comic, and um, it, it we're invited, I think, to sort of see Lancelot and Guinevere partially through through um, this more low-style love triangle. Um, and I think that's also kind of what's going on here, right? Is this is the, the tension-relieving end to the, the low uh, parallel to the, the kind of grander, um, more catastrophic conflict that's happening around, around Quiet Zero. Yeah, I think lining up and comparing the familial relationships is an exercise that is very useful for this episode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the, um, when Felsi intervenes, I think what she's saying, and I defer to any listeners who have more Japanese than I do, I think she calls the, the fight uh, Maji Wara Enai. There we go. Uh, Maji is a fairly informal sort of seriously, really, um, 
this is something close to her slangily calling it like seriously not funny or seriously unfunny there's a kind of pl- fun semantic tension between the two words not suggesting that the translator's doing a bad job i think uh if that's a joke it's not funny it's, it's a really good translation and just kind of glossing what's what's being said there i think it's quite a clever little line I I look at this in a couple of different ways. Uh, obviously, Felsi disarming the situation like that uh, seems to be very much a nod to the dramatic and theatrical underpinnings that the show has been playing with since the beginning. Uh, a little later in the episode, we'll hear that very menacing organ music when the solar ray fires. Um, but yeah, I, I said coin flip in my tweet because as much as I like Ghoul, he, he's, that's a good boy right there. There were so many death flags and just considering his arc that he would just sort of give up and die for somebody it it feels right as a as a means of self-sacrifice but this is a guy who accidentally killed his father and then had a child die in his arms i feel like death is not the solution like somebody dying leaves people in such a state, leaves the rest of the world in such a state that you would not want to do that. Why would he want to do that to Lauda, have Lauda kill him? It just, I don't know. I don't know. I'm very mixed on this. I'm glad I'm glad we still got Ghoul. I'm glad we don't have to, you know, have a Ghoul funeral in the next episode. Well, there's no time. <laughs> Apart from anything else, there's no time for Ghoul to have a funeral, no. Yeah, just a quick <laughs> shot of his grave. Oof. But it it just, I don't know. I'm I'm very mixed on this. Yeah, I think the only the one thing I can think of is um, it would be it would be something if things escalated to put Ghoul in the short set. Is the only thing I could think of because this is also me asking for more footage of the short set, though. Mm. To be clear, mm. oh, definitely, yeah, more of that cool robot, please. Now, returning to the infiltration team, we see that Fivelon has a gun. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I kept thinking of the, the bit from Anchorman where uh, the guy has a grenade. Like, what? <laughs> what? what? Kananji uh, is clearing a path for Belmeria and Murine by stunning the Harrow squad. He throws a flashbang up, and I, I assume it's a flashbang, which then overloads the sensors on the, uh, the Harrow. Uh, Fivelon then follows Belmeria and Murine, telling Kananji that nobody will get killed this time. Now look, I I love my boy Fivelon. He's become a fan favorite for many reasons, understandably. And of course, Kananji does have some things coming to him. He does have some sick burns uh, coming to him. But I also feel like it's it's weird to um, attribute those deaths to Kananji. It's sort of like Kananji definitely deserves it, but for other deaths as opposed to the ones at Astakasia, which were arguably Norea's fault. I, I, I'm I'm not I'm not the right person to say, yeah, take the shot, but given the extent of the rampage that Norea was was engaged in Astacasia, I feel like there's probably a, a you know, there's a colorable case to be made there. Uh so I don't know. It's on one hand sick burn, on the other hand, I'm not gonna look at the facts too closely. Yeah, I think um uh one of the the various effective um sad ironies of uh Norea's death is that um uh, Kananji has played a part in killing a bunch of people completely unjustifiably back in the prologue as as a younger man. Uh, the response of the local security team to um, to Norea shooting up the school um, is, given the circumstances, given what they know, they don't know that Elan is is on the edge of Five Land is on the edge of t- talking her down and so on. It, it's understandable 
that that they that they try to shoot her um uh and 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 she is she is killing people i mean a lot of the deaths that have an Astica- at, at, at astacasia are approximately nerea's fault uh shadik lets her out of the grassley room for going through it knowing what she's going to do so um I think there are other players behind behind that. Um, I think Kananji has this really weird place in the moral economy of Gwich, and I don't know whether the show is going to do anything with that in the time remaining. And if it does, I don't know whether that's going to succeed. Over the last couple of episodes, I've I've definitely become a Kananji fan. He is he's a, he's a rare Gundam adult who knows what he's done. He knows the horrible sin that that simply carries being an adult in a Gundam show. And he's he's trying to shoulder it. He's letting people get in those shots. He's regretful. He's trying to help these kids. Big fan of this guy. <laughs> I hope he doesn't die. Yeah. We'll see. Uh, Kanaji is really interesting because I, I think, too, this is something when we first saw how his appearance uh, in the show timeline, you know, as to say post-prologue, we we saw that you know he, his body had changed. The years had caught up with him. Is I think the impression that the show was giving and, you know, we see him on one hand decisive, being a trained killer, but on the other hand, also still kind of being thoughtful about his interactions, what he's done, what's happened. Uh, and so it doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, he, he's not going to be your best friend and maybe you're still going to send him to The Hague, but given the situation, maybe we can be friends for a little bit. He's, he's got that rare perspective Gundam for an adult, and it's it's nice to see. He doesn't want to give the kids guns. He knows how terrible that is. Yeah, he, he definitely wants to draw some lines. Now, Belmiria, Murine, and Fivelon reach the uh, the shutdown panel, which is just sort of in the middle of, of a hallway uh, with you know some some partitions. Mirane punches in, and I want to emphasize that I went to part-time law school, but I've never taken Latin in any formal fashion, and anytime a lawyer uses a Latin phrase, I recommend taking them less seriously as a result of doing that. <laughs> Mirane punches in, uh, quote, erat demonstratum, which, if you didn't know, is what the initialism, QED, stands for. It doesn't work. Belmiria, in maybe an all-timer move, types the same thing in but capitalizes each word <laughs> that also does not work prospera appears with another uh hero terror squad and announces that of course she changed the codes just a great sequence like i i think so often especially in like maybe like 90s movies when we had these kinds of hacker sequences um like they were not relatable in any way but at this point i think computer literacy is so widespread that we're now going to have sequences like this <laughs> where people try to do things uh where it's like oh well if you just tried capitalizing you know or, or you know i wouldn't be surprised if i ever tried to do all caps next you know if left to her own devices um just like very in much the same way that g which broadly uses the form factor of a smartphone effectively throughout the show this is another bit of that technical literacy. Yeah, definitely. You're right. It's of a piece with the the effort to make something um, that it, that has that pitch to a younger audience. Um, I kind of love this because it reminded me of the USB gag in in Metal Gear Rising 
Revenge. Is it Metal Gear Rising Revengeance? It's the only Metal Gear game I've ever played. Um, there's a USB gag in Revengeance. I love the USB gag in Revengeance because I have a kind of petty mind. Um, and um, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, this this really amused me. Um, as the sequence goes on um, later in this in this action sequence, we will see Mirene try um, Quad Erat uh, Faciendum uh, QEF, that which must be done. Uh, which originates in Latin translations of Euclid's tag for wrapping up the construction of geometric objects. And then she's going to try quad est absurdum, QEA, um, that which is illogical, or, or sorry, that is, uh, yes, that which is illogical, that, that, that which is silly. Um, a back formation on the same model, which I think was generated by English mathematicians in the 17th century, though I didn't put in, like, hours uh, looking this up. So um, there's definitely a, a, a bit developing across the sequence. <laughs> um, it is, it is, I kind of like the fact that this, this isn't resolved by them knowing the password. Um, that's, that's kind of satisfying. Uh, a friend, um, I think it was Mr. Seb on Twitter, pointed out that um, if Prospera had only had two-factor authentication um, uh, she could have avoided um, quite a lot of uh, what happens here, but hey, you know, it's, uh, um, uh, uh, I'm quite willing for the show not to worry about that. Oh, that would have been it. Would have been an all timer if the if the helmet was specifically the thing that re- <laughs> yeah. was required for two FA. Two two FA helmet. Gosh, that would be that would be astonishing. So at this time, Prospera with the uh, the two Harrow assault units is assaulting. Balmeria is pleading for this assault to stop, but Prospera insists that Eri, as the child blessed by Vanitas's ideals, must have a place made uh, for her, Eri, to live. Miorna yells that Prospera should care for Suleta just as much as she cares for Eri, especially given Suleta's unrelenting tenderness for Mom and Ariel. That's my editorializing, my attempt to insert the episode title into what's going on. Uh, Prospera is not interested in this discussion. Specifically, Prospera says that uh, Suleta now has friends like you. Uh, she uses uh, Tachi the suffix, so you lot, you, you, you collectively referring to them as a group. So presumably she's sort of saying, uh, you know, Suleta's family is now, you know, Mia Rene and Earth House, and therefore Suleta's not her, her responsibility anymore. There's some uh, there's some really strong stone cold Prospera here where we're just she's just presented directly with Suleta's love and her relationships and she's like not my problem anymore I don't care and it's just it's rough I think it's very so the you know the, the conflict of the moment is that you know if Prospera goes through her plan it likely affects all the fronts you know which of course includes you know the places in which Suleta made these relationships includes the school that Prosper is telling her to go back to. So it, it's kind of, you know, it is, it is very much easy, it is easy for us to, to dismiss Prospera's handing off because there is no place, you know, to, to sort of say um, there, there is no place to hit the bricks, so to speak, you know, to put in the language of the share zone. And Prospera is not acknowledging that, right? She's saying, she's saying, we'll just go away, but to where the answer is you're not giving me that place. And also, I mean, the, the implications of the Cradle Star short story, if we want to include that, and also of, of aspects of the, of the series, are that although Prospera didn't actually put very much time into uh, being Suleta's mother, she did raise Suleta to love her, um, and um, 
you know, it's it's a bit rich for Prospera to turn around now and sort of say, well, well, that was you know that was all uh, uh, you know that was all uh, for for the time and is over, and I'm kind of uh, withdrawing from yeah. from that. It was a clever ruse, a cunning attempt to trick and deceive you. <laughs> so as Mjorne is trying to bypass the admin rights for the system once again, you know, effectively using almost appropriate technical language. Uh, Fivelon has his gun knocked out of his hand. Prospera is closing in. Balmeria finally chooses violence. She starts firing her gun wildly and disables uh, some of the killer harrows, at least temporarily. Using this opportunity, Fivelon does some sick zero-G moves to recover his handgun uh, and disables a third harrow death machine. So Five Land's disgustingly slick uh, flip here is a series of shots animated by Hiroyuki Okiura. Uh, Okiura is a star animator who rarely works on television productions. He animated the, the gloriously tangible struggle over the bathroom door back in episode 11 at the start of Mirene chasing Suleta through Plant Quetta. Um, and if you look at Five Land's hair as he takes cover, you can see some of the same mastery of portraying massy movement in zero gravity that we saw in episode 11 so this is another of those points where whether or not the whole episode is consistently uh you know brilliant there are these kind of real peaks in his animation and this is definitely one of those uh really happy for five lawn sickos out there they're <laughs> they're eating good with this episode <laughs> yeah i think this is this is kind of the other bit i was referring to when i said that we would have more to say about the animation this is definitely a, a standout sequence again you know connecting the dots here with the the animator who also had that uh, or involved involvement in the excellent zero G sequence from, from episode 11. I do want to say that it's, it's like interesting to me that the ways in which five lines competency surfaces, uh, he has at times been very much incompetent. Like if I was, I was theorizing if I were to make a five lawn, uh, a fan cam and I were to <laughs> sort of try to sync hits and beats there would be as much Fivelon dishing out punishment to other people as him receiving that punishment. You know, when Sophie bounces the harrow off his head or when, you know, when Ghoul throws him out the greenhouse. You know, you have any of these moments in which he is getting sort of physically dominated and it's not clear that he's, you know, it's because he's welcoming it. Um, but here, you know, in this situation... We we do see uh, you know very very pleasantly uh, you know because of how how it looks and also because we're all you know, obviously all five on sickos that it is just very enjoyable to see unfold and of course you know leads up to a, to a moment uh, that was certainly one of the, one of the uh, the biggest shots of the episode. So I and a friend um, suggested she's just been rewatching um, all of the Witch from Mercury to <laughs> to get ready for the final episode. Um, uh, and she was going back over. I think this was her going back over the um, scene in which uh, Five Lan threatens Suleta. For well, first of all, he makes a final attempt to to seduce effectively Suleta. It fails because consistently from the very beginning, uh, Suleta's been like this guy's vibes are like utterly rancid. Um, uh, and then he he brings out a taser and tries to subdue her. Um, with that and that's when Gil intervenes and throws him out of the the greenhouse and um and my friend pointed out and this is i think this was her i've someone i've uh, a friend on twitter and i think this is who it was um 
pointed out, um, and this wasn't in any way like an excuse for Five Land, but maybe one of the ways that his character works is that um, he himself uh, is torn over valuing his own self and his own survival. Um, and the big, like the big, big change in Five Land, and this is not a well developed, like this is not a detailed character, it doesn't need to be a detailed character, but kind of like Felsey, there's one big switch for Five Land, which is while in the room, the grassy room for going through it, um, his, his general um, distaste for being killed by a Gundam, converting gradually to thinking actually it's stupid that Nerea should die piloting a Gundam it's generally stupid that people should die um you know I don't I don't want to die in any way <laughs> um uh, and um I'm willing to endanger myself to 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 try to help other people not die but broadly speaking he's he remains that he retains kind of committed to not dying but he's also sort of potentially come to value himself and others in in a way that he didn't when we when we first saw him um so maybe I mean I don't know to what extent that might be just an over-reading, um, but maybe that makes a bit more sense of how, at this point in the series, he's now he's now kind of more competent. I mean, it, it, yeah, there's an element of sort of narrative necessity to what happens here. That yeah, I mean, I think looking at it in terms of competency, looking in terms of, in terms of of why uh, he would do what he does. I mean, certainly he does demonstrate some martial competency in the grassy room because he, he does not get stabbed with a pencil on multiple yeah, occasions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so credit where credit is due. And and I suppose we know we know right from what he said and from the flashbacks that the Elan Prime is a, a brilliant a brilliant manager, but completely incompetent in anything anything physical. Um and that the besides permit compatibility, the other the other thing that, that um the other Elans are picked for before they're shaped to look like Elan Prime is uh, they're generally good at piloting. They're physically competent. You know, they react fast. And those are, I mean, if you're training as a fighter pilot um, today, um, your your actual reaction time, which can vary from person to person and isn't something you can train necessarily all that much, like that's one of the selection things is like how fast can you see things and react to them. And that is as useful in a gunfight as, as it is in in a fighter jet so i suppose there's some there's some level of plausibility to what we're talking about here maybe god i really hope there's payoff for that alon prime thing i really need to see him just get got hard as hell (laughs) get sucked out of an airlock or something (laughs) oh butterfingers like i I could have saved myself but i'm too physically incompetent to do anything because all i know how to do is manage i think it's really it's really cool to see that they got okiura to do that action because that Really, to me, is Elon finally making the choice to really act for others, not just out of self-interest. And he's he's finally seen what death is. He knows that, like, he doesn't want these people to die. He was following orders before, but you could always tell that, like, he knew how disposable he was. So he wasn't fully committed. He kind of shrugged at a lot of it. He switched sides very quickly. This is him really acting of his own volition, saying, hey, I don't want these people near me to die. I want to fight for them. And that's that's just swell. It's a a little character thing, and you kind of have to squint at it a little bit, but it's nice. It's nice that he's gotten this far. Yeah, I I think if I had to make like a real timeline gauge of Fivelon, I would probably just track his facial expressions. Because you can look at, for example... Uh, the face he makes in the cockpit when he reports to the Pale Crones that he wasn't able to get the aerial, and he's doing that like this is my performance review and I don't give a shit about what you have to say face. 
compare that to, you know, to what he's doing now. And he's very serious and earnest. You know, he says, there are things that I want to do. I'll help you, you know, if you, if you'll let me walk away and do those things. Uh, and he's very serious and engaged in a way that he wasn't before. Still probably not, never going to care about a performance review, but I'm not either. So that's, that's just relatable. <laughs> to bring it back to the action, in the same room with Five Lawns action, we also have Miorine now discovering a, uh, a Notret tomato notated backdoor in Quiet Zero for which the key is the message hidden in the tomato DNA that we saw from last episode. The uh, the tomato icon, um, like the the title case password entry joke, um, definitely adds a kind of layer of camp to to the proceedings that that I appreciate. Um, yeah, this is yet another. Let's push it off into the next episode. Um, it was it's been brought up several times throughout the series that yeah, Natret and Delling put in put the Quiet Zero plan into effect. And as far as we know, Prospera has not modified it in a significant way. She's just pursuing her own ends, which I think is just using it exactly in the same way anyway. So we're eventually going to have to ask why these two built the Death Star to do something. <laughs> I, uh, one, thing, one thing I'm very curious about is whether Natret had any hand in creating um, the the Repli children, including Saleta. Mm, certainly, yeah, that's even more questions. Uh, in the back of my mind, I'm sort of wondering if Okuchi wrote the Code Geass parents, but sympathetic? We'll see. I don't know. Oh, that would but be, I have questions. That would be awful if Nutret, like, what was it? It was Nutret, it was um, Lelouch's mom was like secretly inside someone else the whole yes. time. <laughs> yes, the little girl with the like cell phone diary yeah. yeah the real droll one uh, anya i think was her, her name yeah yeah i i'm wondering there's again next episode let's see <laughs> yeah i i think it's interesting to to speculate the, the, what's been fun for me thinking about this is trying to uh divine you know is there a difference between meaningful difference between the original uh scope of the project as you know, as dreamt up by Notret and Delling, how much has Prospera modified it? Because presumably Notret did not have Eri, but maybe, you know, as Russell suggests, maybe there was more cooperation than we, you know, than we're really uh, thinking of. In which case, you know, the Repla children and so forth are, are involved. And then also, you know, it's sort of the, the planning of this back door and Mjornay being here. Obviously it's, it's fun that it works. It's a fun thing to discover. And so that's why, of course, I can still enjoy it. I don't have to be like, well, this doesn't make any sense. You know, it, it, look, it, it's, it plays out. You get to have a tomato icon in, in the in the Death Star. It's kind of funny. I, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm there for it. Uh, but I'm definitely curious to see, like, does this mean that in the next episode, Quiet Zero is going to turn on and, like, turn off the space laser or something? You know, like, there's some... I, 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 I feel like we have not seen the last of Quiet Zero. No. No. Now... Prospera, speaking of mothers who love their children, which I think we're <laughs> going to get to in a second, Prospera declares that she's doing all of this uh, for the love of her child. But Murine is then disables Quiet Zero thanks to the, the back door that we just discussed. And Fivelon rescues Belmeria uh, with a distraction. He tosses a, uh, a clip or magazine, whichever one upsets gun fans more. I forget which it is. Uh, and then... 
uh, fires off two round-winning headshots, uh, one to a harrow and then the other knocking off uh, Prospera's helmet, and she is now no longer friends with Trey's Kushranata, which is whatever I think of whenever I see a, a, cl- a shark clone helmet go off. I, I think it's just wonderful timing all those uh, cuts together where, uh, yeah, Mjorne uh, yells mother and then the shot hits Prospera and the helmet goes flying. That's just wonderful right there. Wonderful composition. So I, 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 yes, yes, I was going to say a little bit about that. So I might just, I might just. Yeah, if you want to lead into it, go ahead. Um, Please. Yes, yeah, so Prospera says a mother can be very strong and then that's immediately. So Prospera says a mother can be very strong, young lady. Um, or Josan, um, uh, and she's being um, uh, ironically formal and distant, distal. Um, she, obviously, they do know each other. They've met. They've been introduced back in episode seven. Uh, they've met even before that. Um, possibly she's calling, of course, on Mirene's identity as the daughter of the man who ordered everyone of Anandis to be killed. Um, then we have Mirene's desperate cry to her own mother. Um, which is is directed to Notret. I mean, it's, it's that's that's what that's who she's she's speaking of. Um, we are when we get back to to this room, we are going to have Mirene telling Prospera that they're going to become a family. So um, it is also funny that that we have Prospera is talking to Mirene in this very distant distancing way, and then Mirene is yelling "mother," um, and then Elan shoots Prospera just as just as Mirene does that. So I, I totally agree, Russell. I think you're exactly right to pick up on that, and I think. It's very um that's very funny in a, in a kind of quiet way tacitly funny focusing in on this interaction i wanted to ask because um i i you know in my I guess my my first draft of, of the summary i really felt like murine was really twisting the knife here because she was echoing back <laughs> some of the language you know used by prospera to menace murine most pointedly thinking of of that episode seven interaction at the corporate ball but of course, you know, Prespera has always been menacing, like every time they've interacted, <laughs> let's be honest here. And uh, and here Mjorne has a chance to really return the favor. And I think Mjorne is being a little restrained. Like I, I think it is reasonable to say that Mjorne is not twisting the knife as much as she could, but certainly Prespera is taking it personally. <laughs> they gave um, Mjorne a very, very set expression. Um, when she says this, um, so I, yeah, she's certainly extremely determined, as determined as Prospera was, uh, you know, a few sequences back when she was saying how how determined she is. Yeah, yeah. And then the other thing that I wanted to add on here, while we're comparing, uh, you know, these these mother daughter relationships, uh, I wanted to sort of see: do we consider Fivelon and Belmeria to be at all connected in this way? Because I think the show had established. The Forlan and Belmeria as having a relationship like this, or at least has sort of uh, suggested as much. Mm. It's been much frostier between Fivelon and Belmeria. Fivelon is often very vocally critical of Belmeria, but there's an opportunity here where Belmeria says, you know, maybe instead of killing people, you're not really good at that. Maybe you should help people instead. You know, which, which I don't know if you can add that into the series. Does that relationship feel maternal at all to y'all? I can see a little bit of that, a little echo of it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe what's maybe what's uh, significant is what you point to—that absence. Like the, you know, maybe what the 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 maternal thing we see mostly there is is the absence of of, of a kind of maternal tie. I mean, you should try helping people, and you might be better at that. Is is if anything, 
by five land standards a relatively kind thing to say to someone um so yeah i don't know i don't know now of course uh you know this the ending bit of this that we're discussing is happening uh, at the same time that everyone is celebrating uh the dissipation of the data storm and the apparent termination of quiet zero this being activated so you know so Mjorne hacked the system that enables uh, an intervention by a hacking team. We see Roji on screen. We see some other folks. There's this remote shutdown. Which I think is led from the control center of the Benerit headquarters station. I've gone back and looked, and I think they showed us this control center lit differently um, in the first season. Though I think this, a bit like Nika being in the backpack of the demiboarding, is something that this episode doesn't quite have the time it might want to have a, a couple more establishing shots wouldn't hurt there but I, yeah 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 i think i had, re- I had remarked uh, in the last episode that there was this there's this t- period of time where quiet zero was moving around trying to pick up its last lego pieces and it was specifically uh it first went to plant quetta and when it got to plant quetta the pieces weren't there they're already gone and then they were moving towards the uh, like the Benerit home office front, which I think is the same place you know that, that, that Thal is referring to by the the headquarters yes, yeah, station. Yeah. Which I just wish I don't know. Like assuming this is the big climactic event, I do really wish we were at like a more you know relevant place. Yeah, you know, I would take Plant Quetta again. Of course, I would take the school. Although the school has already suffered substantial damage, so maybe it's better we give it a rest. Just the home office front. Uh, you know, and I think the fact that we're having trouble identifying the room from which the corporate hackers are coming from, like it makes it makes sense in the facts when you line them up, when we look as closely as we're looking that it's like, OK, yeah, the hackers from the station nearby are the ones that are being plugged in. But also, like, do we care? Like the home office front doesn't mean too much to us. No, not not particularly. No, no. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I know. Yeah, yeah. It'd yeah. be nice if that was a bit more flagged. I think. Yeah, yeah. Right. It was like okay. Now, now, like the good guy control station launches their, you know, their information counterattack, so to speak. This just has me once again, as I often do, thinking about G Reco, where they were plainly writing and probably storyboarding episodes ten minutes too long, so they were just having to hack out big chunks of them just to get the beats across and some of them are beginning to show up in the movies but yeah there's definitely a lot of just stuff that we needed a couple more minutes on a few quick shots a few little pieces of dialogue to just get it to pay off a little more get it to line up a little better i wonder if this seems like a prime episode and probably the next one to be uh, extended on blu-ray when it eventually hits home video is that common? Does that, does that happen often or? That Occasionally. Of, okay. I can't think I of a Gundam example off the top of my head, but certainly um, there have been shows. Uh, Shin Mazinger um, had some elements of each episode which aired. Uh, were they didn't air. Some ha- they streamed slightly longer versions of most of the episodes online. Um then were broadcast and uh then the blu-ray release of shin mazinga uh shin mazinga has the uh the fuller episode so there are examples like that it's not very common i don't think but i mean well they could do what they want sure. it's there it's their i toy. remember this um, this happened with uh gachaman crowds the 
uh, on-air version of the final episode is virtually a clip show of what the Blu-ray version is. You just have to sort of nod and appreciate well, that's and a slightly, pick up things in context. Yes, that's a slightly an, an, a related and analogous issue, which is when they just don't finish the episode. Um, mm. uh, I think it might have been, even have been the same year that Yatam and Knights ha- had to air one or two unfinished episodes. And that, actually, if anything, is becoming slightly more common I know, as a, as a measure I know, it's, it, which is a measure of the way the anime industry which has never been a great place to work um uh is 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 getting um yeah yeah i'm trying to think of anything like anything we had covered uh and honestly the only thing i can really think of was actually blue blazes which had extended cuts obviously it's a live action show not an animated show uh, but nevertheless an example of you know a television medium where you had cuts with extended bits yeah yeah so that pushes us to really kind of the, the final action of the episode, which sort of, I think, sets up the, the maybe the last true conflict, which is that, you know, Delling, Delling calls again, and he says to the Space Assembly League, hey, we fixed the issue. Quiet Zero is done. Can you please leave? I think you should leave now. <laughs> and then the Space Assembly League uh, is actually still here to do some some antitrust work, uh, and they are going to continue to you know fire the laser at Quiet Zero and also you know wipe out Lagrange Four and other holdings of the Bennert Group. Uh, this fir- and they fire a shot. They immediately just do it. They fire a test shot. The test shot goes straight for Quiet Zero. Eri uh, and her army of gunned nodes are able to put themselves into position to uh to deflect and absorb the shot uh, and in doing so suffer substantial damage and it, i think it is suggested by the appearance at the very end of the episode before the cut to ed that you know Ari may in fact be dead for for whatever that means for Ari. yeah well obviously we don't know but certainly the the show is inviting us to worry about that certainly um the effects animation on the beam itself from firing to its final dwindling away is is really good another really nice uh, moment um for animation uh and we we learn in this something so, uh, in this sequence something that we didn't know before which is that prospera herself has some kind of cerebral um permit implant or or permit effect um which links her to airy in some way uh that may be one reason for the for the helmet of course right that that is something that we see that with that uh that Prospera has sort of um, immediately made me think of the 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 Zell tattoo from FF8, but it is something that you know that would have been concealed by the way that the helmet uh, sits on her head. Yeah, interestingly, it doesn't look like any of the other permit features that we've seen so far. It's very uh, distinctly shaped. That's uh, it definitely point. has a menace to it. Uh, yeah, I'm really curious to see where and, that one goes. And it's activating by her just standing there. She's not in. A mobile suit, which I, I think you know is, is a good reason that supports what you know what Thal was saying, which is that it is likely an implant or something. You know, there is a, a something that is causing this effect to appear on her on her skin. A further thought is that curiously, episode twenty three's ending leaves us uncertain whether episode twenty four could at this point be all epilogue all the time. Um, the first thing in episode twenty four could be okay, so the space laser didn't work. Um, there are enough cameras here that we can't carry on. Um, you know, we're we're standing down from the Space Assembly League, or we could get a whole half episode or two thirds of an episode that's about 
as you say, I don't know, um, Quiet Zero inhabited by Natret's ghost fighting the Space Assembly. I mean, you know, whatever you whatever you want to put in here. Um, I don't have a preference between those. I'm, I'm happy for Gwich to, to do what it wants, and I'll I'll make make of it what I want to make of it when it arrives. Um, uh, or even, um, despite my suspicion that we're looking at something which re- will really and truly finish after Tukur, um maybe the final episode will sow the seeds for more and and maybe the the finale will be a film that we'll get to watch in two years time um (laughs) um, we'll see we'll see um but it's unusual i think for gundam to have its penultimate episode end in a way where you don't actually know whether it's like all all epilogue next week or or whether we still have one final conflict to come yeah i'm i'm very interested to see what's next um I I had feelings, uh, capital F feelings, about uh, G-Witch sort of railroading itself into a more standard Gundam finale with the big battle station and stuff, but that finale seems to say that this is maybe over and the conflict has gotten bigger, a little messier again. It might not tie up, or it might tie up. I, I don't know. I think that's cool that we don't know. Yeah, I think the uncertainty, and I, I feel like there is just enough what I would call immediately relevant plot threads, things mm. that I expect mm. to be addressed next episode that I, you know, I, I, I am hopeful for a sort of pleasant mix of, of action and epilogue. I'm ready for Shadik and the mean girls to show up <laughs> at the space assembly league headquarters and <laughs> do bloody violence or, or just, you know, ask nicely for them not to fire the laser. I, I really don't know. Um, but I, I think there's just enough going on that I can, I can see this being a really pleasant finish, even if it doesn't reach the issues of Delling and Kananji's culpability, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, I, I think that's kind of that's kind of where where I am. I feel like, like in some sense, the most important thing for me was Murinay and Soleta getting back together, and that was last episode, <laughs> right? Or you know, so like everything's fine now. This can end however we have it's to do that. Have to have the wedding next. Week. We have to have the wedding. That's we correct. have to. The wedding or we're gonna get mad <laughs> i mean we had uh so we had of course uh, uh megan on last week brainchild one two nine and she was like they got a kiss and i'm like you're right i mean 100 percent. yeah yeah what we Choo-choo's need. going to catch the bouquet uh with her demi boarding <laughs> that's right uh, that's right yeah <laughs> put the bouquet right in the pot it could it could all work <laughs> All right. Well, I think. Um, is there any other concluding thoughts, uh, Thal, that you wanted to? You want to go? Anything else that you want to add? No, I think. Um, I think at this point, uh, we're we're probably best off uh, sitting and, and and letting G Rich do its thing for for one more week, and we'll see we'll see where we are when the dust settles. Russell, do you have any yeah. any hot take uh, to drop? Um, I'm trying to reserve all of my hot takes for next week. After it is done, I'm going to let it say its piece. I think this was a really good episode. I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, going going over it again with you guys has been a good time. Um, I definitely want to rewatch it. Mm. We'll see. We're just gonna, we're just gonna wait and see. That is a good point. I to, to to just briefly return to my friend who is rewatching the show right now. I mean, she's commented that she thinks it works actually very well um taken together um and obviously you know most of us have only taken it week by week which has been has been fun but it's always, one can never really tell how well something will hold up on on revisiting it and and um uh if we come back to talk about the second second season as a whole in future that'll be an interesting interesting thing to think about yep. yeah i i think that's one of the reasons i'm i my final thoughts are just on the warmer side 
the fact that the the major plot threads have resolved well i think if you watch this uh i don't know if you binge it or watch it at a more rapid pace than we have week to week i think that's going to make it hold up very favorably because you have less time maybe to dwell on what uh, to us might feel like uh hanging plot threads uh, and so that's, you know, obviously there's, there's still some room for stumbling, you know, if we, if, if we don't get that wedding. Uh, but by and large, I, I think this has um, been a pretty successful endeavor, which is why I, I feel sort of calm and collected uh, going into the, the finale. Uh, so I, I think I'm, I'm right there with you. And I think that brings us to the end of uh, at least the discussion portion of this episode. Uh, you know, again, thank you. I also enjoyed it. I had a great time hosting. This is, I think, the first time I've hosted an episode since the finale of our planet with coverage. So I had a, had a great deal of fun uh, getting, getting to be in the host seat again. Uh, Obviously now I want to give you gentlemen uh, a chance to do some plugs uh, for anything that you may be up to. Thaliarchus, I know you at least can tell us about uh, crap. Oh no, I, I want to get it right. Um, Don't don't worry about it. It's fine. It's um, uh, (laughs) well, it it deliberately has a generic robot show sounding. That's right. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. The title's the title's meant to sound like every other robot show title, right? I mean, it's uh, yeah. So you can find me on Twitter at Thaliarchus T H A L I A R C H U S. I am writing a long giant robot um, story, a space opera in verse, um, uh, but hopefully readable and entertaining verse. <laughs> uh, you can find that on itch. It's called Cosmic Warlord Kinbright. Um, uh, let me see if I could just pull up. Give me one second, and I will uh, read you my favourite endorsement of it. Yes. Um, uh, so this is from my acquaintance, Sunshine Moon RX. Uh, read this if you like gay women in giant robots, warlords who get comeuppance for their bloodthirst, and the complex feelings when those are the same thing. Um, uh, yeah, so that's that's what I'm working on. It's not finished, but there's plenty of it for you to go and read. Um, uh, if you're interested, if you're not interested, that's fine. And uh, yeah, thanks, thanks, listeners, for putting up with me. Great pleasure to be on. Uh, thank you for the invitation. I also want to specifically plug for Thal that he has done some live readings of this material. On that is true. Twitch, <laughs> uh, yeah, which yeah. I definitely and they're archived, so uh, you, yeah. you can find them. <laughs> also, definitely, uh, you know, f- find the link for that. And enjoy that as well. I'm, I'm, I'm always happy. I don't know. I'm, I, I live on Twitch. Not that I have great loyalty to Twitch, but I do enjoy, uh, you know, stream content. It's something I spend a lot of time on. Russell, what are you up to? I have to say, Thal, that's a hell of a pull quote. That you <laughs> something. Uh, that is excellent. Um, hello, I've been Russell Latshaw. You can find me at Russell Latshaw on Twitter for as long as that's around. We'll see. Um, and I very infrequently blog at spacekaleidoscope.com. So for any terrible opinions or stupid things haunting my brain, you can find me on those places. Excellent. Of course, all of those links whether it is to the, the Twitter pages, the uh, Cosmic Warlord Kinbright, or Space Kaleidoscope, they will be in the show notes on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on. Of course, if you're listening to this podcast when it first drops, that means you're a patron of Giant Robot FM. So thank you for your support. Thank you for your patronage as we close in on the end of this series of bonus podcasts. Uh, it is very appreciated. Uh, or hope, Hopefully you're all enjoying it. This program might also be on the public feed in the future as well. Uh, so if you're listening to it, then consider if you want to support more podcasts like this, if there's future, which for Mercury content and you want a podcast to cover it week to week, you know, your support of giant robot FM helps enable that to happen. 
If you want to support us in the main feed, we are an independent podcast. It is always appreciated to get the word out there about what we're doing by leaving reviews or by otherwise giving us word of mouth recommendations. In terms of what we're up to on Giant Robot FM, I've already plugged the Gunbuster coverage several times during this podcast. Do consider that. Check that out. We had an excellent discussion on Blue Blazes that Russell was a part of. We did seven hours of history with podcast friends Coop and Rex, and now we're moving into episode-by-episode uh, episode discussion. We just recorded a first episode discussion with Dawn from the Anime Nostalgia Podcast. She's an outstanding guest. Had a lot of fun talking to her. Uh, so, you know, check out all of those things. Uh, we'll be doing that more. We'll be going into coverage of the novelization of Gunbuster video games about Gunbuster uh, before moving on to other things in the fall. I should mention uh, again, we will be delaying the final radio for Mercury episode about a week to account for some travel and medical recovery times. And then also hopefully I'll have the chance to reconnect with Steven Russell and Thaliarchus for a core two retrospective that we are expecting to record probably in September. Give, Give the dust a little time to settle uh, before we jump into kind of taking uh, taking stock of things. I want to give credit to Dwarf S for our graphic design. Credit to Shkin. Shout outs again to Shkin for the excellent art. And credit to Fretzel, hashtag Fretzel for the music that we use. Do either of you have a fun stinger? I, I, will, I will gladly defer. <laughs> no, I don't have any fun stickers. <laughs> all right. Well, I just want to say that for all she's done, my hat's off to Prospera. Mom's <laughs> going to be so strong. <laughs>